Hi, I'm Dan Cottrell, editor of Rugby Coach Weekly. You're about to jump into one of our podcasts. If you want to find out more about this podcast and also all of the great content, drills, activities, games and advice on the website, then go over to www.rugbycoachweekly.net. I hope you enjoy the podcast. But you don't teach people how not to be bad at football. You teach them how to be good at football. What, do you, what are the rules? What are the, tr- the, the tactics and strategies? Rugby Coach Weekly presents The Coaching Knife, where we cut to the root, cut out the fluff, and challenge the masters of their domain to cut to the chase. Welcome to The Coaching Knife, when we cut to the root of the matter. In this episode, we speak to Tom Bennett, OBE, Behaviour Advisor for Schools to the Department of Education. Focusing on managing and changing behaviour in groups, we're going to cut to the root on simple tools to improve coach or teacher interactions with children. Tom, are you ready for the knife? Knives are out. What exactly is good behaviour and how do we get to that? Good behaviour is the behaviour you need for the moment you're in that helps you to succeed. So for some kids at schools, good behaviour might be being quiet sometimes when you're listening to a story or watching a film. But good behaviour can also mean speaking up and and, and saying something, standing up for yourself, taking part in a debate. So good behaviour depends on the moment you're in. Good behaviour for a football player is different from good behaviour from a butcher. You know, good behaviour is contextual. So we have to get beyond this idea that good behaviour for example, in schools, just means being still and quiet. Sometimes it does. So from a teacher's point of view or a coach's point of view, they've got to understand what good behaviour means for the teacher or for the kid in that moment. Well, for, for, well, a teacher needs to know what they actually mean by good behaviour right. because we're very good at spotting bad behaviour. Oh, I didn't like that. But what do, you, what do you actually want them to do? And here's a weird thing. If I... I wanted someone to drive really well. I wanted their behaviour at driving to be good. I wouldn't say, here's a car, don't hit things. Don't break the highway code or, else, or I'll arrest you. What you say is, here's a car, like Oprah Winfrey, here's a car, and here's how you drive. Let me teach you. Here's what to do. And I think this is, you know, this is intimately connected with the whole kind of coaching idea of sports as well. That you don't teach people how not to be bad at football. You teach them how to be good at football. What, do you, what are the rules? What are the, tr- the, the tactics and strategies? What are the, you know, the physical behaviours needed? So there's behaviour then uh, needs some rules. It needs some rules, but also needs kind of guiding principles as well. Right. So, for example, if you're, you know, if you're playing a game, then you'd absolutely need rules because otherwise people will contest everything. I mean, they do anyway with rules. Mm. So you can imagine how chaotic it would be without rules. But it's things like, for instance, in a school context, you would say, here's how I want you to come into the classroom. Because it's not obvious. Kids have got different ideas about what good behaviour is. Good behaviour means a million different things. You can't just say, we're all going to be respectful to each other. Because respect means one thing for Aretha Franklin, as it does to Don Corleone. You know, what do you mean by being respectful? Literally, what do you want them to do? I want you to come in like this, with these books. Define it for yourself. It can be a million different things. Right, okay. So you can say it could be a million different things. But from a, let's say, take a teacher's point of view, what would be the sorts of things that they should expect? Right. Right. Well, I mean, it can be a million different things, but it can't be anything, right? right? So you can't have them, you know, tumbling into the classroom like circus jugglers and so on. And <laughs> what, basically what you want, you want your lesson to start as quickly as possible. You want kids to be in the right mindset and ready to work as hard as possible, listen and learn. So that normally means uh, some kind of threshold ritual or protocol. Now, it might be 
You line up outside and you define what the line's like and you define what their uniform's like and you define the equipment they have to have. You define the volume that they can speak at and it doesn't matter to me as long as you're happy with it. Or you then say, no, I want you to come straight into the classroom and there's a do now starter activity. Put your jacket here, your bag. Really basic, boring, mundane things that make it happen. And teachers need to replicate that through every circumstance where behavior could go wrong. You've got to teach it, teach it, teach it. You know, shower protocols, canteen etiquette, lining up outside to go into the assembly, you name it. If it's a behaviour, it should be taught to students in schools. I think the danger is that uh, people listening into this will say that sounds that sounds great, but also it sounds, sounds very brilliant. sounds draconian. It sounds like uh, I'm bossing around. I'm trying to make you uh, into a robot so I can then educate you. And I that, say educate in a sort of an aggressive way. That sounds great if you're a fan of of, of um, postmodernist uh, philosophy. But anyone that actually has to deal with children will know that 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 people need to some level to be governed. I mean, children need to be governed. If you say to children, "Do as you please." I mean, good luck to you and hell mend you. Because if I said to my children, what do you want for... I mean, occasionally I'll say, what do you want for dinner? And I'll, and I'll go with it. But if I said, what do you want for dinner every night? We'd be eating marshmallow pizzas. My, my, my wee boy is a wonderful boy, but he'd, he'd run across the M1 to, to chase a squirrel. You know, I mean, he needs, he needs boundaries. And children need boundaries until they learn to operate their own boundaries. We teach them independence by scaffolding them what they should and shouldn't do. So this idea... That, you know, if we if we ask them what to do is somehow, you know, it's oppressive and fascistic is is it's just mad ideology by people who really don't know how to raise children or teach them. So we need to give them rules. I suppose what we need to next understand is what rules work. And the, the next thing is, how do we actually introduce them? So what rules work and what rules don't? I mean, I know we you start off by saying let's not teach them what don't is but there must be some things where you say right don't do that because you'll never con- you'll never control a class by saying shouting yeah. at them shut up at the start yeah oh absolutely so for example i mean i talk about the behavior curriculum it means teaching people how to you know how to do things you know what do i actually want you to do here's how to drive if i want you to learn german i don't say don't speak french right but at the same time I mean, t- driving is a great comparison. If you want people to be good drivers, yeah, teach them how to drive. Perhaps we could call it a driving test. But you also need a highway code of what not to do as well. So you need the boundaries as well as what to do within those boundaries. And it's putting the two things together that optimizes the type of behavior you're going to get. So when it comes to you know how you introduce these rules to kids, I tell you what you do. You normally start off by appealing to something that they already want. I always used to say to kids, welcome to my class. I look forward to teaching you. I love teaching kids like you and I love my subject, right? That's me. I want you to be safe here. This is going to be a place where you're going to learn and succeed. This is going to be a calm place where we listen to each other. And it's going to be a place where you're treated like you matter with dignity, basically, because you are. And I matter too, right? That's it. That's my narrative. That's my frame. And then I say to them, and so here's the rules we're going to use in order to achieve all that. And I promise you, you get about 99% of kids going, that sounds pretty good to me. You very rarely get a kid saying, I don't fancy safety. Now, that some uh, teachers or coaches might say, let's um, create these rules together. How does that fit into that? What does a load that, of bollocks, work? Dan. What a load of bollocks. I used to work in a pupil referral unit. And I remember, because I was trying to be Mr. Groovy teacher, I said to the kids there, right, guys, let's co-construct the rules. Hooray! Aren't I groovy? And the first kid put his hand up and said, right, we want cigarette break. Right, this is a 12-year-old. And I said, uh, no, you can't have that. And he said, oh, so we're not building the rules together, sir? And I went, yeah, you're right. We're not. We're grown-ups. We basically know what they need to do. 
And there's no point co-constructing them so we get buy-in. We, you know, to, to an extent, we tell them what they need to do. But we also, I mean, we persuade them as well. We say, look, this is why it's valuable. If you want a kid to be really good at something, you say to them, look, if you do this, you can be fantastic at this. You could be, or you'll be healthier, or, or you'll know more, or whatever, you know, or you'll get a job. There's lots of things you can teach them. This is why we're doing it. Okay, so the the, the buy-in stuff, the empowering stuff is not going to, won't persuade them, or I'm trying to think of how we're going to persuade them, because there is a danger that uh, we stand at the front and we don't sell the rules in the best way. And I'm trying, obviously, exactly. we're going to sell them. Absolutely. So what's which the best why, way? Which is why I say you don't stand up there and say, hi, you know, these are the rules. Right. Because we're, because about a third of your kids will go, okay, yes, rules are good. Mm-hmm. A third of your kids will go, mm, not sure. And a third of your kids will say, the hell with your rules, right? You know, because I said so, isn't that a good sell? So that's why I say you start off the class saying, I know you want to be safe. I know you want to succeed. I know you want to, you know, be treated with dignity here. Most kids are like, yeah, that sounds freaking fantastic to me. Mm. And then you say, that's why we've got the rules. So the next time you pull them up for something or insist that they do something, you can refer back and say, remember why we're doing this? Yeah. So that's why you've got to stay behind at the end of the day. That's why I need you to finish all these songs, whatever. That's Mm. how you sell. So you do persuade, you're right. Absolutely. As as much as compel. Now, uh, within these rules, there are going to be certain things which have got to be in place, like don't don't talk when I'm talking. Again, how do you sell that as something that's going to work? Because in all um, in the hundreds of years I've been teaching, and hundreds obviously we found years. out that I'm much older than you. You are. That's yes, I am. Just for the, the record, 54. I mean, this was no, fifty-five. I am. Fifty-five. So, this was Logan's run. You'd have bought the farm. Long. Time. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm off. I'm yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. How can I allow them? Remember things. But, but, yes. Well, no. How can I that's stop age. them? Stop them talking while I'm talking <laughs> without, because that's what you're doing to me, without that becoming me sh- saying shut up. Because I think that's what lots of coaches uh, struggle with. Yeah, listen, you know, I, can I just say, if you're shouting at somebody, I mean, if you're doing it, I mean, obviously you have to shout to be heard sometimes across a pitch. That's yeah. different. But if you're shouting aggressively up close to somebody, then in my mind, you've lost the game already. Because because what you're trying to do is you're trying to intimidate them. Now, if you want to, if you want to get kids to do things by intimidating them, you're probably in the wrong job, right? You teach kids to do things because it's the right thing to do. And they eventually get a sense of, I need to do this because I need to do this. You can administer penalties. You can administer rewards. You can teach rules. And you can do it the same way I'm talking to you just now. What you've got to do is you've got to mean what you say and carry it and follow through everything you say. That's when kids believe you and they trust trust you. Okay, so t- t- tell me about follow through. What do you mean yeah, by that? Yeah, follow through or execution. It's not as, as dangerous as it sounds. It's basically the idea that you've got to let kids know you're sincere. Kids respect sincerity from, from grown-ups because often they're let down by other people. And if you say to a kid, and let's say in a school, if you say to a kid, I need you to tuck your shirt in. And let's say you've already taught them that's the rule. Right? The danger is that a lot of teachers will say, tuck your shirt in and walk away. And I promise you, because I'm an observer of such matters, that 90% of the time, the, the shirt either doesn't get tucked in or comes back out again. But you stand there and you say, you need to tuck your shirt in. Nicely and calmly like that. You need to tuck your shirt in just now, please. Yep, all the way. And around the back as well. Yep, I want you to look, you look really smart now. Perfect. Now, I don't want to see you like do that again later on today. Let's stay smart all day long, okay? And if you see them again, then you follow up on it. But it's that follow through. It takes a few seconds longer, but they learn that you will never back down and you will not give up and you mean what you say. And so when you're saying uh, you're not going to back down, you're you're just remaining calm throughout that conversation. Why get get upset? What a weird weird maniacal thing to do, to get upset about somebody not tucking their shirt in. Just look at them and say, you need to tuck that shirt in. Now, let's not waste our time again with this again. Thanks very much. You look really smart now. You know, you can be nice about something while reprimanding them. 
Now, uh, some teachers will do it through um, a touch of sarcasm. Is that uh, is that a no no, or is that uh, is that okay in the? I would I would I would say danger. Family are always in danger. I would say that that the use of sarcasm is something which is best reserved for people with whom you have extremely good relationship. Because I mean, for example, in a school context, children with autism do not often. Sorry, that's that's wrong to categorize. Often do not process sarcasm particularly well. It confuses them, and and they often take it literally. Younger children often take things literally. If you say to a four year old child, "Come in here, I'm going to kill you," you'll you'll get tears. Um, so you've got to be very, very careful about using sarcasm. If you really know somebody really well, that's when you can say, you know, clear up scumbags or something like that. Mm-hmm. But even then, I'd be bloody careful. Can you talk to a room full of people and somebody might have been, been, you know, or somebody might be having the worst day of their life. You don't know their home life. So when it comes to talking to large groups of people that, you, let's face it, they're not your pals, I'd be really, really careful about using sarcasm simply because it doesn't land very well with lots of people. Just be direct, honest and straightforward and sincere. And you can use a bit of sarcasm once you know them really, really well. But mm. the question I would ask is, why are you using sarcasm? What are you trying? Are you trying to make them laugh? Mm. You know, no. what are you, Coco the Clown? You know, what are you? The, are you Mr. Tumble? No, you're the teacher. You're the coach. You want them to get better at something. So focus on that. Now, sometimes when we talk about behaviour, uh, the word strict becomes uh, something which is used mm. to do with behaviour. Just help, help me understand why we sometimes may have to be strict and maybe that's the right word or the wrong word. Yeah, strict is like discipline. It's got lots of connotations. You know, discipline can be a really good thing. You know, self-discipline. For instance, you know, elite athletes have to have a lot of discipline to get up in the morning and train and practice when they don't bloody well feel like it, you know, or get back up after the defeat. And the same way that, I mean, strict can have good and bad connotations. I mean, strict just means, you know, sticking to what you said you were going to do. And in that respect, if you, if you say to a class of kids, anybody that chucks a pen at somebody will get a detention, right? And then the nicest kid in the class does it, you know, to somebody. Then the temptation is for you to go, oh, they're so nice. You know, what's the point of giving them a sanction? But the point is you've said that's going to happen. And unless you do, you've got to be strict and you've got to, be, you've got to mean what you say and follow through and, and do it because you said you would. That, in a sense, is being strict. And to be honest, it means inflexible to some extent, you know, carrying through. But I think that when you go too strict when you've got zero tolerance or zero exceptions that's when you can sometimes run into trouble for example if a kid comes in late to your lessons you might be tempted to give them a detention but if it turns out they've just been beaten up in the corridor and that's why they're late then you're a pretty nasty bit of work if you give them a detention for that so zero tolerance or over strictness can also be an issue i would say be very strict but don't make strictness everything now and with that, in that strictness and all that behaviour, there's um, there's a danger again, and I'm using use the danger quite a lot that uh, we take away the chances for the the children uh, to be creative. Now, of course, creative is a word which um, again throws up a few interesting ideas yeah. about what that means. But if you, if the the sense is that right, be quiet, do this, do this, do this, doesn't allow them to be themselves or uh, try things out or make mistakes. How does that fit into what we're trying to achieve? Uh, to be honest, oh God, there's, there's so much to unpack there. I, I don't want kids to be themselves if being themselves means punching someone in the face. You know, I mean, I mean, living your best life and following your heart is okay advice unless you're Charles Manson or a mass murderer. <laughs> you know, I mean, what, what does that actually mean? We want people to be good. We want mm. people to be brilliant. We want people to exceed us. And the weird thing is, A, creativity is such a vague term. It's got about 50 different agreed meanings there is no agreed meaning of what creativity means and how to inculcate it secondly the strongest 
um, suggestion I can have about creativity is if you want kids to be creative, then you, you teach them the disciplines and the boundaries and the excellence of the thing you're trying to teach them so they can then be creative with it. Children are no more or less naturally creative than anybody else. And the idea that, that somehow we are, we're burning it out of them by teaching them stuff is not only nonsense, it's the opposite of true. You know, I mean, Shakespeare went to a grammar school, which in those days was pretty bloody strict. It wasn't like modern grammar schools. We had to memorise the Bible. Now, I'm not suggesting that you should do that as a, as, a, as a principle, but you can see everything he learned dripping off every page. You know, I mean, Prince played every instrument in his first seven albums, I think. But his dad had a recording studio at the back of the house. He wasn't just born creative. Mm. You know, he studied and worked incredibly hard to be creative. Mozart mm. wrote his first opera when he was five. His dad was a maniac who hothoused him. Again, I'm not saying we should do that, but you can see how he turned out the way he did. And there probably is some natural aptitude there as well. Don't get me wrong. But I can't do anything about genetics. What I know is that as an educator, we can do a lot about the environment we provide with our children. So we give them lots of rules and boundaries so they can learn the skills and crafts to be brilliant. Okay. Now we've got, um, we've, we've talked a few extremes there. Not every child will, not every class will have a Charles Manson type, but they will maybe have That's a... That's <laughs> who you claim, Dan. So you claim. Okay. So sweeping statement that I've made there. What happens when you get to a stage where somebody is just not fitting in to the environment at that time and you want to remove them from the environment? Now, I can see, I mean, obviously uh, that in a school situation has a bit of debate about it. In a sports situation, how can a coach do that in a way which doesn't disrupt the the situation? So a child needs to be removed or you think you need they need to be removed? Right. Well, first of all, a lot of your work is preemptive. It's done way before the event itself. You teach, for instance, the players in the team long before they set foot on the pitch. These are the rules. This is the etiquette by which we're going to live together. This is how we work together. It's not so. It's not just the football rules. Here's what happens when ref blows the whistle. Here's what happens when somebody calls offside. Here's what happens when somebody commits a foul. This is what I expect you to do. And it's things like teaching the behaviour of you know how to respond to being challenged by the referee or something like that. You know, because you want to teach more than just the rules of the game. You want to teach them how to be a good player, how to be a good member of the playing community, the football community, whatever. And so when it comes to that, you say to you say to people, if I send you off, here's what I expect you to do. And you teach them that when they're calm. You teach them that before they get in the pitch. You say to them, a condition of you being on this pitch is you following the rules and instructions from me. And if you choose not to do this, then I'll sanction you for it. And it could even lead up to like penalties like being cut from the team completely and so on. But I don't want to do that. I want you to be brilliant at football. So here's how we're going to work. You know, and you teach them that they sell the benefits of doing the right thing. So when it comes to the moment when they've got the red mist and they go, oh, I don't want to leave the pitch, you say, remember what we talked about. And there's a much more of a chance of them going, yeah, okay, fair enough, because you've got pre-buy-in. They're already cued to think that. Whereas if you just spring it on them, get off. And if you mm. talk to them like they're something you just stepped on, they'll be surprised if they fight back a wee bit. This is a great place to finish uh, because there's so much more I know that yeah, you, uh, you'd there's love so to do. so many more places with this. Yeah, I know. Uh, so anyway, Tom was a teacher in East of, the East of London for 13 years. Currently, he is director and founder of Research Ed, a grassroots teacher-led project that aims to make teachers research literate and pseudoscience proof. He's also published uh, and been involved in plenty of books. Links in the blurb. Uh, his philosophy is behavior is a curriculum. It can be taught like anything else. You can contact him on Twitter at Tom Bennett 71 or read his book, Running the Room. I thoroughly recommend that. And he's also Tom Bennett Behavior 
at gmail.com. That's behavior spelt in the English language way. So we're going to finish with some questions. And he's, yes. yes uh, he's delighted to tell me how old he is. I'm 51. I'm proud of it. I'm getting older every day. Yeah. What coaching book is by your bedside? Um, the, 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 because I'm not directly involved in, in sports, I tend to read things like uh, books by behaviorists who work in a school context. So, for instance, I mean, I know it's an old favorite. I know it's an, an oldie but a goodie, but Teach Like a Champion by Doug Lamar. Come on, I know, I know you know Doug Lamar very well. Oh, yeah. Teach Like a Champion is is one of the absolute you know bedrock, one of the foundational texts when it comes to behavior management of groups. And it's utterly applicable to sports context as well as, you know, academic and, you know, maths context and so on. And so, I mean, my, my work and Doug's work complement each other, I think, very well. Uh, and he's, his, his book, um, A Teacher's Guide to Coaching, is, is, is a fantastic um, book to yes, run alongside. Yes, I haven't read it yet. Yeah. Uh, so which uh, coach or teacher are you loving at the moment? Can't say Doug Lemoff. Oh, cannot say him again. No. Oh, you, okay. I mean... Can I, can I just say that that, uh, that that there's a teacher from my past? Can I can I mention that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was there was a guy called uh, this guy called Kenneth Gray who's actually just retired as a head teacher, and he was uh, just an inspirational teacher to me. And he was I used to love writing, and he was very good at writing. And he used to coach me in my writing, and he would scaffold stuff, and he would show me, and he would direct me towards things I should read, and then he would critique my. And he really, really, really took a really kind of close kind of personal interest in my writing, and it really, really supported me. So, so he's my kind of life coach in that respect so kenny gray's out there somewhere so because he took a personal interest that's uh you were talking about the genuine teacher makes a difference yeah i mean i mean i would ask for he would set kind of extra stuff for me to do because i was i was pretty good at writing at a young age and and he kind of personalized the ways in which to kind of push me a wee bit higher i mean you can you can teach the whole class but it's very hard to reach every single child all the time and that is the best way to teach by doing a whole class session but sometimes it's good to say look if you're a bit of a self-starter if you really want if you want to get better here's some individual things that you can do uh which team or sport or subject would you love to be teaching or coaching at the moment (laughs) okay again i can use a school context i absolutely adored my own subject which was philosophy and re but i always had a suspicion that i'd love to teach english as well or coach or teach in English I tell you what I get a big buzz out right now I, I do a lot of coaching with teachers and leaders right now and the more you coach particularly leaders the more impact and leverage you have in schools it is a joy to see schools really lift their game grab the low-hanging fruit and and see standards raised quite quickly just by coaching leaders into ways of implementing routines and systems and practices in their school which can transform them really quickly so to be honest I'm kind of living my dream right now. Well, we like the sound of that. So who's inspired you most then? Oh, well, again, back, you know, back Penny Gray, there was also another person called, well, I mean, a lot of what I do is is teaching and writing. So I guess one of my writing inspirations would be Christopher Hitchens, the, the late, great Christopher Hitchens, who was just, he was a, a masterpiece in, in living form in terms of how he wrote and how he spoke. So I, I, I don't try to emulate his writing, but other things like, for instance, uh, John Steinbeck and uh, the horror writer Stephen King have both written really fantastic guides to writing, which I, I dip back in from time to time. So they're my kind of writing inspirations. And given that you're so old, you have to think back a long way. What would you tell your 20-year-old self to do more of? I would, I would say go to the gym, 
<laughs> you know, I'd go to go to the gym. Keep up, keep up the jogging. <laughs> That's probably what I'd say. Okay. I'd probably, I'd pro- oh, I tell you what I'd say. I'd probably say, you know, floss more and get, you know, get some, get some early sleep. And for God's sake, what are you doing smoking? Where did you get that from? At twenty years old, you muppet. That's right. what. I'd say. <laughs> okay. Well, there's some things for twenty year olds to think about. Tom, it's been brilliant. A real pleasure. Thank you very much for that. Huge pleasure, Dan. Nice to speak to you anytime. See, speak to you soon. 